Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog guardians. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm a certified professional dog trainer and I take my 10 years of training experience and I share easy to implement dog training advice with an emphasis on kindness and compassion. Welcome. I'm so excited to share more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. We have a pretty exciting topic to talk about in today's episode. If you've ever seen dogs do search and rescue and think that is so cool, maybe this podcast episode is for you. So I have a special guest with me today. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. So my name is Melissa Stegnaro. And I am the vice president of ARSA, which stands for American Retinhone Sport Association. It's kind of a funny name. So we do sport search and rescue. Uh, So we chose the name because rescue dog is a little bit vague. We know what does it mean. Um, And we're super proud of people who are out there volunteering, doing search and rescue, uh, putting in all the hard work. So we wanted to distinguish ourselves from that too, because we do it as a sport, which we'll be talking more about today. So um, the sport search and rescue is actually very common everywhere other than the U.S. really. (laughs) Um, And most folks just call it RH for Rettenhund, for rescue dog, the German, German. So uh, sometimes we may just refer to it as RH, similar to folks just say IGP or IPO. So Got it. Very good. Yeah, I was going to say, um, it makes sense that it's a German name, right? That makes sense. Okay, so um, before we dive into talking about uh, about search and rescue as a sport, do you want to just tell everybody a little bit um, more about why you got involved in the sport? Do you participate with your own dog? Like, I'm curious to hear just a little bit more about you in that way. Yeah, so... Um... I have a, a retired dog and a young dog, so I'm not actively competing now, but um, my older dog is a Dutch Shepherd, and um, I was looking through a breed magazine, and I saw for a stud dog listing, you know, of somebody else's dog that they had this title, and I was like, wow, I don't even know what that title is, so I looked it up, and like, oh my gosh, it's Sports Search and Rescue. And I got super interested and I looked up the rules and I was like, my dog knows already 80% of everything that's on the rules. Let me find a competition. And that's what I did with him. Um, He was such a great dog that I worked up through uh, all the sport levels of tracking, doing the full program, obedience plus scent work. And doing just the scent work, I did all the sport levels of the wilderness search, all the levels of the rubble search, and beginner for the man trailing. And I have a a young dog now that's um, 
started with man trailing and some of the obedience, but it'll be a little while before he's ready to compete. These things take time. These things take time. Okay. And then just tell the listeners, what are your dog's names? Uh, the Dutch Shepherd is named Clued, and my young dog is a German short hair pointer named Boozy Tim. Oh my God. I love it. I find that it's like, we just, we want to know more about your dogs first. You know what I mean? Like tell <laughs> us more. Who, what are you? Okay. So, you know, I love how it's always like you get involved with one dog and you, you love the sport and then you do it with the second dog. That's how I was with agility too. Right. Like that's what's so appealing about dog sports is it just makes you want to get more dogs and do it for longer. Right. <laughs> right. And for me going between two very different breeds, I mean, they're both high energy active dogs but their mentality is so different that it's it's really a fun learning experience for me that's amazing that's amazing okay so um can you just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with can you just tell them a little bit more about like search and rescue dogs like what that involves and then we can kind of distinguish how you've boiled it down to the sport of search and rescue yeah definitely so in this country, um, depending on where you live, there are some community search and rescue groups, and really the needs are based on the community. So you might have live find wilderness dogs. So think of, you know, the person wanders away in the park and is somewhere in the woods. Um, those dogs search off leash for any human scent. Um, so they might be scouring a whole big park and if they come across somebody, then the, then the handler will say, Hey, have you seen, you know, someone meeting this description? Um, and they have rubble dogs, which is also, uh, often called urban search and rescue or disaster. So think of a building has collapsed because of an explosion or, or a flood or a hurricane or tornado. And again, those dogs are finding any living person that is trapped in the debris. Um, We also have like, I always think of like those famous like photos from like the nine 11 rebel, right? Like all the search and rescue dogs that were looking for, for bodies there. So yeah, this there's a need for that a huge need for that and that's a a very specialized thing that only a dog can do well right I mean dogs noses are awesome they also have a lot of technology that has listening devices and um, drones are getting more sophisticated and other sort of robotics to go in with cameras into small crevices um, and either through sound or other means to try to detect human life um, I will say for the sports search and rescue, we only find living people. Actual search and rescue on the teams. Uh, sometimes they'll have dogs that do both living and deceased. Some dogs will specialize, uh, but for the sport, it's only living people. Um, in some areas they'll have avalanche dogs um sometimes they'll be in the community sometimes they'll be uh sponsored by a ski resort um in some areas they have 
water rescue. Um, so these, they're not actually doing scent work. Picture the Newfoundland or the Labrador jumping off the boat, uh, you know, bringing a, a life preserver to somebody. So they're not actually searching with their nose for the person, but they are rescuing them. Um, there's also man trailing. So you can think of, you know, the typical hound, although many breeds excel at man trailing, you know, on, on a long leash, you know, scouring through urban or a wooded area looking for a specific person. Uh, the sport search and rescue all has, also has precision tracking. So it differs a bit from man trailing that the tracking dog is staying very close to the footfalls. So for uh, a civilian search and rescue volunteer, it's very unlikely that they would do tracking um, for real search and rescue because they would often be called quite late and after the scene is fairly contaminated. So a, a police dog or sometimes uh, fire departments also have search and rescue dogs. So if they're first on the scene, then a tracking dog might work out great. But for a civilian volunteer, a tracking dog usually isn't as practical as a man trailing dog or, or a wilderness dog. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know a lot about this, but man trailing would be something catching a scent and finding it after a duration of time, but tracking would be more real time? So uh, that's a great question. So tracking, um, a well-trained tracking dog can do a three-hour-old track without too much a problem. Wow. Now, obviously, if, if conditions, you know, if we're talking about like a, a pristine uh, meadow and the weather is just right, <laughs> yeah. you know, now we can go like eight hours, perhaps. Um, a well-trained man trailing dog can do eight hours um, and perhaps definitely more if the conditions are right. Um the reason a man trailing dog can do longer is because they're going off uh, the, blo the, the blown scent and the ground disturbance and new scent coming off the trail layer. So the tracking dog is mostly focused on ground disturbance. Um, so that odor dissipates sooner then for a man trailing, sometimes you'll see them, you know, very deep nose. Sometimes you'll see them head up. Um, some of that is breed dependent. Some of that is weather and terrain dependent. Right, right. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I feel like the average human being just has no appreciation for the strength of a dog's nose. And just hearing you just describe those two things just makes me appreciate the dog's nose and their abilities just that much more. Okay, so so typically the search and rescue is really going to customize to the community and what the community needs, right? But to be a search and rescue team, it's, it's very involved. It takes a lot of time, energy, and continued maintenance and training, yes? That's true. And like I said at the start of this call, um, 
you know, we wanted to distinguish ourselves doing the sport aspect because the real search and rescue folks that are putting in the time and the money, on occasion, there'll be donations and maybe someone will buy them a bag of dog food or a tank of gas. Um, but all the training, all the call outs, all the seminars, everything that's generally speaking on the search and rescue volunteers dime. And, you know, all, all like the vet care, you know, when injuries happen. Um, yeah. So it's dedicated people spending lots of hours on training and all their own money, putting themselves and their dogs at somewhat of in harm's way. Um, often people get lost when the weather is bad. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's, they're definitely, um, heroes and very dedicated. Okay. So shout out. So any of you who are listening, if you are a search and rescue team, you have our utmost respect. That is amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Okay. So And I think that that's, I think that that's such a good segue into why we have this sport, because it offers a little bit more flexibility for people who maybe don't have the time or energy, or maybe a dog who's really good at some aspects, but maybe isn't capable for like the for reals work. Yeah, definitely. And so everything you just mentioned is definitely accurate. We have, you know, sometimes people have a demanding job or family situation. So they can't be on call. They can't be, you know, pick up the phone. My dog and I are going to be on scene in 20 minutes. Um, You know, some people can't be carrying a pack of their own food and water and the dog's food and water and a tent and this and going out, you know, on a wilderness. Uh, We have a wide age range of folks that participate in the sport and quite a few people in their seventies and eighties um, that do, being on a SAR team with all the requirements maybe isn't feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and I love that. Right. And I love how it's an opportunity for humans and their dogs to work as, as, a, as a team and do something productive together, even if it's not the like, you know, four reels going out on calls and doing search and rescue. Okay. So can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about, um, you know, I know you, you mentioned some of the like variation in age range, but I imagine there's a variation of like skill level and, and natural ability in different dogs too. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, um, how some teams maybe are really successful in some aspects of the work, but maybe not all of it. Like, I'm sure you see that a lot, like natural abilities and training and the difference in, in those two. Um, certainly, I mean, the, the sport can be enjoyed by a wide number of, of dog handler teams. Um, sometimes folks come to the sport after having done many other dog sports, like I did with my first dog, we did all these great dog sports and he wasn't old by any means, but he was older. He's probably five or six. And so we transitioned into this. There, there are some agility type obstacles. They're not, they're not excessive. Um, 
And there's definitely some, you know, working the terrain, you know, for the wilderness searches, the dog would probably be expected to, you know, cross over fallen logs and certainly for the rubble. Um, you've seen maybe the collapsed buildings that the dog has to go over, but sometimes people come to this sport after being retired from IGP or agility or competitive obedience. Their dogs are maybe middle-aged, have a lot of skills, and they just want to move over to something else. Um, some folks start that this is this is the first dog sport that they do. So we have a big mix of already trained, and then we just train them on a few specialty things, and they're good to go, versus raising the dog from the beginning. Um, it, it's it's amazing how many dog handler team breeds and different sorts of people have been enjoying this sport in the U.S. Right now, in my training group, we have a small-legged terrier, and we also have a livestock guardian breed. It, you know, it's crazy, right? I mean, we, we also have, like, the typical Malinois, German Shepherd, of course, Um you know, we have other retrieving type breeds, but, um, you know, we've had a minpin in the past. Uh, That's amazing. And, you know, I, I feel like over the last, in, in my experience in Colorado, where we are, I feel like in dog sports, there's really been such a huge influx of just a variety of breeds doing a variety of things. And I love it so much, right? Like, all of these dogs have something unique and maybe a little bit different to offer to the sport. And would it really be fun if it was all just like one breed of dog? It probably wouldn't be as much fun as the sport. <laughs> right. And, and something to maybe warm your heart in particular, the, the dog handler team that won our national championship last year was with an American pit bull terrier. Oh my God. I love it. I was like, I can just, I can see like the bully breeds just thriving. Like, Oh, I got to jump over things and use my nose. Okay. I can do that. Like I can <laughs> see them just being like, Oh yeah, that sounds great. Oh my God. Okay. So let's, um, let's tell the listeners just a little bit more of, um, some of the skill sets that maybe people listening might already have that maybe could be useful. I know you mentioned like some obedience skills and stuff like that, but Maybe just give the listeners an idea of like, if your dog can do this or this, that's included in in this sport. Yeah, so I will say, so um, like most sports, there's three levels of increasing complexity. And I do just want to mention um, these sport levels are the basis of community, real life, SAR teams in most of Europe. So if someone was already a SAR handler, wanted to go into the sport or from the starter with the sport and wanted to go over to real life, um, the skills are are comparable and there's not going to be a conflict in any of the training. Good to know. Good to know. Um, (laughs) So for a full title and for you know some of your listeners we have we have local competitions we have national championships and we're working to uh send a team over for international championships we've got a little a little behind our schedule due to covid but 
but we're getting there. Um, so for local competition, someone can do the full title, which is an obedient dexterity component, and then separate ascent component. So the obedience dexterity, uh, most of it is everything's normal skills, uh, healing on leash, healing off leash, a long down stay, sit, stand down, a retrieve, go, going through a closed tunnel. Uh, there are two search and rescue kind of unique obedience exercises. Uh, one is the carry. Uh, so picture that you and I are on a team and we're searching rubble. And my dog gets injured and I get injured. My dog needs to be comfortable enough that you are going to carry him off the rubble pile. He's not going to squirm, you know, causing then you to walk awkwardly. And he's going to be just confident enough. All right. This nice person is carrying me down. Um, and another at the beginner stage, we have a exercise where they have to heal over debris. So again, the, the dog is confident and sure-footed and can navigate small obstacles. But other than those two, uh, it's for the most part things that people involved in AKC obedience um, and you know, a little bit of agility could definitely negotiate. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be a cool way for those of you who've like spent time and energy on those obedience skills already. This could be a really cool way to like, you know, <laughs> use those in another setting. Definitely. And so at the local competitions, if someone wants to enter only obedience or only the obedience dexterity phase, they can. And then if they want to enter only the scent work, they can. And the full title is is doing them both in the same trial. So the scent work options we kind of alluded to already. Uh, there are there's the precision tracking with the dog going close to the footfalls. There's man trailing, which is a combination of working the ground disturbance as well as air scenting. There's what we call rubble, which is the urban disaster collapse building. There's the area search, which is the wilderness live find. There's also a water rescue and an avalanche. Um, so those two are pretty dependent on the club. You know, if, if you're in Florida, you're not going to be offering avalanche as <laughs> part of the trial. Um, and if you're, you know, it, in Kansas, you're probably not going to be offering the water rescue. Although, you know, you certainly, there's some large, large lakes and whatnot. You could. Um, but yeah, so what is offered by the club would just depend on, you know, whatever the club has to offer. Right, right. Okay, so can you give everybody a little bit more sense of like, okay, if you wanted to get involved and you were interested in tracking, is how do people go about like starting out with their dog? I know nose work is like really big here. Does that have any crossover? Like, tell us just a little bit more about tracking. Right, so um, for tracking, 
I would definitely recommend there's some great resources on IGP IPO style tracking. Um, different, I've done AKC tracking as well. In some areas that I'm familiar with, the AKC tracking is very tight on the track. I'm not sure if that's universally true. So if someone had an AKC tracking dog title or a TDX or a, a VST, um, whether they should enter tracking or man trailing uh, would kind of be dependent on how tight the dog is. Um, we have a bunch of resources on our website that I think the information will be on the show notes. Yeah. Um, so I would recommend going, finding an IGP club, finding an AKC tracking club, or working through an online or, or a video course for tracking. Nice. Nice. Okay. So in the search phase, so are, are the participants doing the tracking, the area search, the rubble search, and the man trailing? Are they doing all four of those? Does it depend? Yeah, no. So you would choose one. One. Got it. Okay. I was going to say, this is a lot of searching. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, with my Dutch shepherd, I did all four, but not, not at the same time. Right. So we focused on one. Um, but so, so some of, some of the folks competing, they want to, they want to try Jack of all trades. So they're doing beginner tracking, getting that title. They're doing beginner area search, getting that title, beginner rubble, getting that title beginner man trailing getting that title and seeing if they want to go back to do the intermediate level of any one of those or maybe just start with another dog. Um, we'll say for those folks who are listening who who do search and rescue and especially for any of your international listeners, there's a level beyond the third sport level called mission ready. And so that uh, there's really no obedience. It's all search work, but it also includes, you know, GPS reading and first aid and, um, you know, point last seen and those sorts of real life skills. So once a team were to complete the mission ready, they would be a certified search and rescue team. But the three levels below that are just for sport. Wow. Wow. Although in some communities, I'm sorry. So in some communities, um, the local sheriff has come out to training and been so impressed by the sport dog that when they've had, um, you know, missing people, they've asked the sport handlers to come and try. Um, wow. Wow. So like, like, I mean, even if the goal is search and rescue, doing the sport is a great way to get there. Definitely. And um, even before COVID, some teams, some search and rescue teams were really not accepting new people. You know, you can only do so many man trails and so many wilderness hides in one training session. So, so you're a bit limited, you know, how many instructors you have. Uh, but for some folks that are told, 
you know, no, try again in six months, no, try again in six months. If you were to work through and prepare for the sport and just come back in six months and say, look at what my dog can do, they would be much more likely to accept you because you've done all the training and, you know, you've shown the dedication. Right, right. So, okay. So tell us a little bit more about, so you're based, where are you based? Tell the listeners where you're based. I'm in Virginia. There's a big uh, contingent in the mid-Atlantic area um, from Southern Virginia to Pennsylvania. Uh, We do have folks in Arkansas, in Texas, uh, a number of folks in Washington State, a few in California. Um, So as I mentioned at the start of the call, so I'm the vice president of the national organization, and we have a lot of resources to help grow new club members. Very cool. Um, So Anyone who is interested will have the information in the show notes, so please get a hold of us. But if you have four folks who want to start a club, the national organization is going to support you monetarily and sending out trainers and really getting things going. That is amazing. That is amazing. Okay, so can you just walk us through a little bit more like... I imagine orchestrating and running a trial is a very labor intensive endeavor, right? Like they're held outside, I assume. Like tell us just a little bit more about like the logistics of trials. Yeah, there's there's always things and uh, especially if you're if you're a small club then really having people that are not entered is as important as people who are entered because yeah you you never know the the whole to-do list you know ordering the porta potty and the trophies and you know (laughs) everything adds up big laundry list um but the good news is this sport does have another name that i didn't mention and it's ipo slash r so the healing and the stay and a lot of those exercises are pretty much identical to IGP, what used to be called IPO. So a lot of folks have come over or are doing both IGP and RH, um, or they have a retired IGP IPO dog, they're moving over. So that's great because putting on the trial, it's, it's usually the same field and Everyone knows, you know, we have the two two teams coming in together. And so that definitely helps. And I'm sure there's uh, IGP clubs in your area. It's definitely a more popular sport than RH. Um, so getting getting IGP folks in your area to help with the tracking and the expectations for the healing would be a big resource. Yeah. Yeah. So the trials take place outside. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, any reason that the obedience could take, it is precluded from taking place indoors, but right. uh, it, it's you, dependent on the region. Like in our region, we do a spring and a fall trial. Um, you know, certainly cl- clubs like in Florida 
you know, they do a lot of, you know, December through February, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the high North, they'll do, you know, July and August. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, I, I just want to hear if you wouldn't mind just sharing like a little bit more about maybe some of the teams that you've seen just really thrive in the sport. Right. So a lot of my listeners, um, have training experience, but maybe don't compete in dog sports. So um, I think maybe giving like the outsider who, who maybe isn't involved in dog sports, maybe some of these dogs who like had natural abilities and the handler's like, all right, I guess we got to teach you these things so we can do this. I will say from a lot of experience, it, it's quite often sometimes that in the past I've roped in my quote unquote pet dog friends. And I don't mean that at all in a disparaging way, but right. I need people to hide for my dog. I need someone to help practice carry with my dog. So I've, I've roped in my quote unquote pet friends and I've convinced them, look, their dog can actually do this too. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have such a big diversity of different breeds and different ages. And, you know, sometimes some, maybe some of the listeners might struggle with their dog, you know, being so distracted on leash on, on walks and being a little bit rambunctious in the house. But if they had an outlet to actually do the close in tracking or the man trailing, or I mean the, the rubble, so many things going on on the rubble pile the dog has to test the footing at each step and work the scent and in some of the rubble piles I've worked there's tunnels of scent so the person is hidden in one place and because of how the concrete has fallen the strongest odor is this other place but it's quite far from where the person actually is. So having the dog work that out, because if this was an actual collapsed building, we don't want to say bring in the crane over here. We need to bring the crane over closer to where the person actually is. So I found that dog teams that have done the scent work, the scent work training, then they're not so crazy pulling on a leash on a walk. They're not so rambunctious in the house because that part of their body and mind and soul of being a dog and being a nose on four legs has been satisfied. Oh, oh my God. You are speaking my language right now, Melissa. And I think that it's, you know, for everyone listening, who's like, wow, this seems like a lot of work. Some of you have just extraordinary dogs who you have not given the appropriate outlet, right? And this is something I'm totally thinking about with Waylon. Like Waylon loves a good romp around in the woods and he is always on the trail of something. And maybe it would be nice if I could intentionally put him on the trail of something maybe more desirable. (laughs) Well, and one thing I will mention to your listeners, uh, so there's another use of these skills, right? So we mentioned actual search and rescue, volunteering for your local community group. We mentioned doing this as a sport activity. Um, 
But some folks like to train their dog to be kind of self-sufficient, right? So if you had, a, you know, an elderly parent or a child or a niece or nephew that has wandered away and you're right there with your dog and your dog has been trained, you know, as your personal, uh, you know, your family's go-to, um, you know, you have to be careful because sometimes people will say, oh, of course, my dog will find little Timmy. You know, some people also say, oh, of course, my dog would protect me when <laughs> that's usually not the case. Um, but giving a dog a, a task, you know, so just even playing, you know, with friends and kids and having them hide but making it real to the dog. No, I really need your help because I'm, I'm a human and my nose is so tiny. I really need your help. That also changes the relationship between you and the dog and gives them more of a sense of self and some of the goofiness that sometimes you get from dogs that are, you know, kind of treated like little babies all the time that they'll step it up they'll be like oh no this really is an important task oh my god so I I just I'm sure there's just this beautiful level of like at the end of a trial just a ton of just satisfied dogs (laughs) who have just like done what their instincts and training have told them is that your experience that you see the dogs are just so satisfied after the fact Oh, well, definitely. I mean, I would say for a trial, uh, you know, emotions are high. I would say after, after training, after a typical training, usually the dogs are, are quite satiated. They've enjoyed doing the work. They've enjoyed being rewarded for the work. And now they're enjoying resting. Amazing. That is amazing. I love it so much. Okay. So Melissa, tell everybody if they wanted to get involved. I know you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but um, do you want to, we'll include the links in the show notes, but do you want to go ahead and just kind of tell people like, uh, you know, some places they can look at to, to, to maybe get involved or just learn more? Yeah. So please come to our website. It's a uh, sportsearchandrescue.org. We also have a Facebook um a page that you can put uh, ARSA Sports Search and Rescue. It'll come up. It's also linked on the website. We have a bunch of training resources on the website. Uh, we have some books and um, some videos. Uh, the The Sports Search and Rescue, as I mentioned, is quite popular internationally and one of the the guys who does it out of Korea, he made some stop motion videos like Legos, but I don't think actual Legos, but stop motion videos of the exercises. And so those are awesome to watch. So we have those videos up and uh, we put tips on our Facebook page all the time, different exercises that we'll walk folks through. Uh, Like I said, the national organization is really uh, here to help promote local clubs. So have four members, 
will come out. I'll do a seminar, do a mock trial, you know, depending on what you need. You know, we'll have Zoom calls to work through training issues, help you build the equipment. So we would love to hear from more folks. And, you know, even if you're not ready to join right away, you have some questions, um, you know, email us through the website, put it on the Facebook, and, and we'll, uh, we'll address your questions. Amazing. Oh my God, Melissa, this has been so informative and I'm going to be honest, inspirational. Okay. Because as you know, I, I think that this is something that Waylon would really enjoy. So I'm definitely going to look more into it and hopefully one of these days, maybe we'll meet in real life at a trial. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you much, so much for having me tonight. It was great speaking with you. Reactive Redefined will reopen for enrollment on Monday, January 2nd. If you have been waiting to be a part of our group coaching program and you're already on the wait list, rest assured you will be the first to know when enrollment opens. If you'd like to be one of the first to know, be sure to join the wait list. You can check out the link in the show notes. If you feel like you need more immediate support, join the self-guided version of Reactive Redefined in the meantime, and then we'll apply what you invested in the self-guided towards the group coaching program. Steph and I are so looking forward to welcoming new teams into Reactive Redefined and seeing you all thrive and grow together. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.